Sexual acting out among narcissists is such a common problem, it's nearly a trope. Are all sex addicts narcissists? Or is sexual addiction something that a lot of narcissists struggle with? In this episode, Tara and I are gonna dive into the intimacy problems that are common in toxic relationships. And instead of the self-help tip, we're gonna do something different. We're gonna take the listener's question and answer that instead. And maybe you have a question that you would like us to address on a future episode. If so, please email us at hello at breakingfreewithcarrytara.com. Thank you for joining us on Breaking Free from Narcissistic Abuse. I'm Dr. Carrie Kerr McAvoy, a mental health specialist with over 20 years of counseling experience. And I'm Tara Blair Ball, a certified relationship coach. This is a listener-supported podcast. Please consider becoming a supporter of the show for less than a cup of coffee. You can see a link in the show notes below. I have been contacted by people who have not only been narcissistically abused, but also are facing a form of sexual addiction. Do you think that's a regular feature of narcissistic abuse? Or do you think this is just a fluke? I would love to know what you think. You're aware of my history of also having someone who is a narcissist who had, I think, clearly a sexual addiction. The stats are really high. And mm-hmm. and like like you, it's a story that I hear again and again, that even if it's not just cheating outside of the relationship, but issues with porn addiction, issues with subscribing to sites like OnlyFans or abusing other types of lewd sites. So absolutely. Even if it's just the love addiction aspect of sex addiction. So having lots of inappropriate sort of boundaryless relationships with people of the opposite sex or people they find attractive. Well, let's even back up and define what we think sexual addiction is. Want to jump in first and tell me what you think it is? Well, addiction to the process around some aspect of sex. So a process of looking at and ingesting or consuming a lot of porn or the act of hunting for affair partners or sexual partners. Um, That's how I would define it. Yeah, I kind of approach a little bit, of course, are you surprised from a psychological perspective? (laughs) (laughs) I would say it's the use of sex as a way to deal with coping, a normal coping mechanism. It's avoidance of emotions, avoidance of stress, and then you're defaulting to sex as a way to do that. So I kind of separate them into two groups. I think there are people who are narcissistic who think they are entitled to whomever they want, and they are seeking supply. And of course, the greatest supply is to have someone think that you're all that or to get sexually exploitive. But I do think that there is another group that's using sex as a way to avoid their emotional angst and difficulties. So I sort of see it as both a both problem. But I think that a lot of narcissists are misusing sex. I think that's just across the board. But I think some are not sex addicts. They're just predatory and exploitive. And then I think there are those who actually would fit into the sexual addiction definition of at least as I see it. So what would be the difference between misuse and abuse? When does it cross the line? I always think it's a misuse. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's it's an addiction when it becomes a coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. So there are those that I think just are predatory that are they opting out of dealing with grief or loss or maybe a bad day at work and defaulting to sex? Well, probably a lot are, but there are those who compulsively do it. And I would say that's the addictive piece of it. But then there are others who just say, I have this insatiable need to have people admire me or to think I have all this prowess. And so then they're seeking those people out. So I I know it's really hard because how do you define that line? I think it's it's 
it, it, you have to look at what are they using the sex for? Is it just supply or is it also supply and coping? Mm-hmm. Now, addiction in general, they would see it as becoming an abuse when you start having some kind of consequences from it, which, mm-hmm. again, that's a fine line to walk because is it a big enough consequence if you lose a relationship, for example? Yeah. One relationship versus many relationships. When does it become unmanageable to you? When do you start having big enough consequences? And Alcoholics Anonymous, they would discuss that you're an alcoholic if you cannot quit or cannot quit entirely. Mm -hmm. So there's that aspect, too, where if you're misusing sex that often, then it can become or you can't quit whatever the behavior it is for you that is around sex for long enough, Mm -hmm. you know. But I always go back to the consequences piece. I think it's a big enough consequence if because of your misuse that you're the term that you're using that you're losing relationships let's say multiple then yeah then that becomes a sexual addiction here's kind of an example of what i'm thinking of is the differences and by your definition i think almost everybody would qualify as having an addiction (laughs) but y'all too (laughs) but here's here's an example is my ex claimed to have masturbated at work more than 10 times Hmm. You know, that's really disruptive. It's hard to have much of a... And that's work- unmanageable. That's yeah, a fireable offense. It, yeah. And and he's losing a job every year, year and a half. Are we surprised by that? To me, that's that's a highly addictive habit versus somebody who may be home and then scouring the internet on a dating site despite being married or in a monogamous relationship that the partner doesn't know that this is happening. Maybe they don't have to do it, but they're doing it just because they're looking for more supply. To me, that's I, that's why I said it's a really fine edge to cut. And I know that based on your definition, both would qualify. And my definition, the second would be not an addiction and the first would be. Hmm. But here's a bigger question. Does this even matter? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not for sure it does matter because both is highly destructive. Yeah, both are going to be painful and hurtful and hard to find. And both can very likely end their relationship. I don't know if it would necessarily matter whether they were a sex addict, just a sex addict, because, I mean, and any addict in general is going to have narcissistic traits versus being just narcissistic. Do you really think that? I'm not for sure I agree that all addicts have narcissistic traits. Oh, absolutely. All active addicts, I absolutely believe, have narcissistic traits. Okay, but you said active addicts. Yeah. Do you think their pre-morbid personality, what they were like before they started using was also narcissistic or do you think they could have had other types of personalities the literature is different i i know for myself that i absolutely had addictive personality traits prior to ever using any kind of substances but do you think you were narcissistic no i don't right i I would agree with you i don't think every addict is a narcissist i do think that when you're using you become narcissistic oh absolutely yeah like the deception the mask that was absolutely a big part of my active use right um yeah because the research I was aware of is, and it was looking at the opiate usage, that when they recovered completely, they resumed their original personality, which was unlike the addictive personality, that it reverted back. That's the good news. Problem is how hard it is to become sober. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I think all narcissists, well, here's another question. Do you think all narcissists are misusing sex? I know there are people out there who say that they are. Mm-hmm. I personally don't agree with that. Because I know narcissistic people I can, off the top of my head, tell you are not misusing sex. I do think we need to qualify it. So there's sexual addiction, but then there's also sexual, I guess, 
sexual, I want to say sexual abuse, but that's not quite the right term either. But the idea of using sex for power Mm -hmm. by withholding it, for example, I have absolutely seen people who are narcissistic who have withheld sex as punishment or to manipulate or to con. And that's not necessarily them having a sexual addiction, but they are. It's still a misuse of sex. So I don't think that every single narcissist is is sexually addicted. But yeah, I don't either, because if it was the DSM-5 would list it as a characteristic and it doesn't. So I don't think it's a universal, but I but the number of people who struggle with this is so high. And I know it's a, a a very devastating experience to have in a relationship. I I was cheated on, and it, it it decimated me. So I think it's it's very prevalent, but I don't think it's universal. And and I, why do you think people want to insist on the universality of it? I think part of it is we just want to make sure our experience seems universal because then we don't feel so alone with mm-hmm. it. I would wonder, or I would guess it was that. And maybe too, those people are hurt or damaged more because of the aspect of it, you know, because it was cheating, because it was withdrawing of love, affection, sex from their personal relationship. I don't know. That's it. Yeah, you got me thinking. I know for me, it was harder to talk about. Mm. I, it, it was something I felt like I couldn't share with anyone that I would certainly, if I said, if you know, imagine if I stepped back and said to you, hey, I just came home from the honeymoon and I found out he's been cheating. You probably said, Carrie, you need to get out. But I wasn't ready to hear anybody tell me to get out. So I don't really want you to choose a side. Mm-hmm. I wanted to keep all my options open. And the way to do that was to tell nobody. So I think maybe that's a part of it. And when, when I did tell them, there was so much shame, especially when you start to say to the degree, like, yeah, it's prostitutes too. And then you're like, oh, my goodness, I just want to I want to like be buried. Please bury me. You know, it's just so embarrassing. The, and this is a wild part is I didn't actually make him do that. But yeah, I was owning his shame. And I think that's, I th- did you do that with your relationships? Own the shame? Like when you oh, found absolutely. out yours was using? Yeah. And I was just thinking that while you were saying that. It's just the level of victim blaming that you even just hear in the media. Like if you had been a better wife or you had serviced him right or mm-hmm. who knows, like he wouldn't have cheated. He wouldn't have stepped out. And you hear that kind of blaming for people who are cheated on frequently. Like mm-hmm. you did something wrong. Like you're the reason why he cheated. You weren't emotionally intimate enough or you didn't show up or you weren't supportive there's i mean it, it all comes back to that victim blaming yeah and it's so much more personal to have someone say that you didn't fulfill your partner sexually and that's why he or she stepped out than it is just that the relationship wasn't working out it's just a more painful intimate thing but absolutely i well part of my responsibility part of my responsibility for mine was the fact that i didn't know you know, I here I am. I re, I'm a recovering drug addict married to another re, supposedly recovering drug addict who had been secretly using for eight years. And somehow I didn't fucking know. Mm-hmm. Like, how do I how do I not know that? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I make excuses for that? And when he would act out, he he very much only acted out in private. But there were a couple of ca- occasions where he did act out where other there were other witnesses. And I always felt like I needed to excuse it. Like, oh, he's just in a bad mood. He had a bad day. He's He's tired, X, Y, Z. And I felt embarrassed did because he know, acted out. But did you know he was acting out? Oh, absolutely. When he's in a meeting and throws a chair. <laughs> like, yeah, but like, couldn't there be for other reasons? Who says that's because he's using? Oh, I don't. I'm not saying that's because he was using, just him acting out oh, in general. Well, okay. I yeah. just take it. You knew he was acting out with you by using. Mm-hmm. But you're saying you knew he was unreasonable. Yeah, that okay. he was unreasonable and abusive and that I would at times take 
responsibility for that. But, you know, oh, if those people had known that he'd had a bad day or if I hadn't said X, Y, Z, or if I hadn't taken him here, then he wouldn't have been at the meeting and thrown a fucking chair. Like I like I could do that for a grown person. Right. But that's that's another hard part, because at least for me, I see myself as part of a a relationship. So Mm -hmm. I feel protective and part of a relationship is trust and respect. So I'm not going to like diss my partner for having a meltdown because maybe I might not do it, but it doesn't mean I'm going to show disrespect or be contemptuous of this person. I just saw it as me being a good partner to do that. Mm -hmm. I think that's really hard because if we start to like attack our partner, that's actually a form of betrayal. You're already having a relationship breach. Your relationship already is moving into trouble. So that's the other tricky part is at what point do you say, I have to protect myself enough that I need to distance myself by saying that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you're already affecting the alliance. It makes me think about in couples therapy. We were in couples therapy before we ever got married. And the couples therapist suggested that we start using we all the time especially about discussing problems. This is our problem. And there's a lot of research to back that, that healthy, successful couples describe their problems that way, that it's it's an us problem. Well, I could tell a shift in how I was viewing in our relationship when I started saying his and really like made him responsible for his abusive, unhealthy behaviors when I did that separation. But that, mm-hmm. you're right, that was, that was like, the end of the end. Yeah. You know, when I like started cutting off, cutting off the we. I think, though, and I know we're a little bit off topic, but I I do think that moving forward, when I if I get into another relationship, I want to hold. Yeah. okay, when I want to hold both present. I want to be both a me and a we. Mm -hmm. And and to know that if there is a problem that I need to talk to this person about that in order to protect the we. But I also need to at the same time protect the me. And that's the part that I didn't do. You know, for us to kind of wrap up this topic, I would love to know, so what should somebody do if they think their partner is misusing sex? Oh, that's a hard one. (laughs) Because if they're a narcissist, I mean, they're not going to own it. They're not going to take any responsibility. They're going to blame, blame, deflect, project, all of that kind of stuff. If it was a healthy relationship, you'd speak to them about it. Be like, hey, this is what I'm noticing. I feel X about it. You know, Um, I absolutely dated someone who had issues with porn and I had a conversation with him about it. And it was a healthy, open conversation. And part of what came out of that conversation is that we had a different definition of what monogamy meant. Mm -hmm. You know, I was okay with porn. I was not okay with, for example, subscriptions to OnlyFans where there's an intimate connection. You know what I mean? So I was able to have that conversation. We were able to define what monogamy then meant to us as a couple, which meant if there were breaches, that's a clear right. that's clear lack of monogamy in that relationship. But it's not a healthy person if they're right. potentially narcissistic. Right. And none of none of those healthy relationship strategies work with them. Right. So I don't know. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> like what the I, fuck do you do? I think it comes back to you have to watch what they do, not just what they say. I mean, mine in the entire time said I've never worked harder. I'm I'm in recovery. And yet the proof was not there. Yeah. But it, it was hard to find. the. That's where I started stalking him because it was hard to get the proof. I think it, it ha- you have to come back to, do you feel safe in this relationship? Do you feel respected? Is there sexual intimacy and intimacy in this relationship? And if there is inconsistencies or ambiguities and you're just not feeling, you feel like something's wrong, I think you need to pause and then start to move more heavily into the me than the we. Mm-hmm. But there's there's some people who are just sort of hypervigilant and paranoid. You have to know that about yourself. Are you one that tends to see, 
you you know you're, you're fearing an affair under every rock, or is something feeling off? So you have to kind of know your own bent and then work around that bent. Because I do know there's people who just sort of are naturally suspicious and careful and fearful. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where you feel like with mine, for example. He just I felt like we were in the a game where you put one arm in and one leg in, but you, you know, supposedly you're supposed to put your whole self in. I felt like he never put his whole self in. He just wasn't in the relationship. There's always a part of him he was holding out. And certainly sex was going to pieces on us. So I could feel like his investment wasn't in me. So I think it comes back to us trusting ourselves mm-hmm. and really taking a hard look at the relationship. So instead of a self-help tip today, we're actually going to answer a listener question. Carrie, I've heard two different opinions about whether someone can heal from or be cured of narcissistic personality disorder. On one hand, people say, no, once a narcissist, always a narcissist. On the other hand, I've heard that narcissism stems from some deep wound that was inflicted upon them or that they suffered through at some point in their life. And so that if they get therapy related to that specific trauma, they will recover from their narcissism. What do you think? The latest research suggests it's a biosocial problem. What that means is that there's biological components. They actually looked at neuroimaging and the the brains of a narcissist functions different than a normal person. They're actually neurodivergent. Now, why are they neurodivergent? Is that a genetic predisposition or is it because of early socialization, which can cause changes in the brain? We don't really know. But there is changes in the brain. That's why we often say narcissists don't change. I think they can become more cognitively empathic and maybe learn to be a little more self-reflective. But here's the problem. That means looking at their failures and mistakes and taking ownership for that and their shame avoidant. Mm -hmm. So it becomes this paradox. How do you look at something when you can't stand to look at it? Then you don't tend to look at it. And you can't change if you don't look at it. So that means most of them will never do that. So I'm not optimistic. I mean, I've worked with narcissists in the office as a psychologist, and I haven't seen many profoundly change. I don't think there will ever be a person who is easy to live with, who is reflective, sympathetic, shows a lot of interest in their partner. I think there's always going to be a measure of disconnection and intimacy loss for the partner or the spouse. So it comes back to the question of, can you withstand that? Yeah, the stats I've seen have said 2% success Mm -hmm. rate. But I... I am hesitant to even share that stat because mm-hmm. I feel like some of our listeners might hear that and be like, 2%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Send them. <laughs> you, want, you know, the scientist in me wants to jump in and says 2% is about the margin of error, meaning that we always have a mistake. We always have a little leeway that that kind of catches people falsely. So you're basically saying it's somewhere near zero because I'm sure 2% is the margin of error. I'm sure it is. So, okay. So are there really any change? Or are we just catching the deviation in the measurement? I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I always want to caution because this was my tendency in my relationship is I tend to want to think that I am the exception. Mm. And most often we are all the rule. Yeah. And exactly. so like, let's not attach ourselves to the 2%. Right. Let's attach ourselves to that 98%, yeah. meaning that it, it does have an extremely low, unlikely success rate. Which comes back to the person who asked the question has a lot of work to do around settling themselves with that possible outcome. Yeah. Thank you for joining us today. Have a question or comment? Email us at hello at breakingfreewithkarrieandtara.com. If this episode has been helpful, consider becoming a supporter. And if you haven't yet, make sure to follow us at Breaking Free from Narc Abuse on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. We'll see you back here next time.